So what does a guy do with that time uh, that he spends waiting to recover from flu? Uh, so this was the challenge I faced last week, six days in a row of fever and a rocking head and uh, a cough that rattled my bones. Uh, people who wanted to stay far away from me, loved ones and friends, didn't want to get within 15, 20 feet of me. What do you do with all that time? So, I, you know, I napped. Uh, I read a lot of books. I did crossword puzzles, uh, and I watched the entire Bourne series on DVD. <laughs> I got all five movies, including the one that Matt Damon doesn't appear in. All right, so a lot of car chases in those movies. You take out the car chases, and there's like 18 minutes of story left. But if, you, if you've never seen the Bourne series, it, it, it begins with a guy getting fished out of the Mediterranean Sea, and it appears that he's dead. A crew of a fishing boat picks him up, and the boat's doctor takes a couple of bullet slugs out of his back, and then he finds this embedded microchip, and the microchip gives information about a safety deposit box in a Swiss bank. Well, the guy's not dead. He's, he's very much alive, but he's got amnesia. He has no idea who he is. No idea who he is. So they eventually put him ashore, and he travels to Switzerland, and he goes to his, uh, to his bank and opens the safety deposit box, and now he's more confused because there's a gun in there, and there's a lot of cash, and there's a variety of passports. Same picture, his picture, but different names, different nationalities. So who is he? has no idea who he is, and for the rest of the series, that's what he's trying to find out. He's trying to discover his identity. That is the, the Bourne series in a nutshell, a guy looking for his identity while being involved in many car chases. <laughs> so we're beginning a six-week series today about personal identity. It's called True Self. True Self, our sense of self plays a hugely important role in every one of our lives. I mean, your, your sense of identity impacts your level of happiness. Uh, it influences your important decisions. It determines how you treat other people. It controls your achievements. Who you see yourself to be is a pretty big deal. So how does a person come by a sense of identity? Well, some people find their identity in their job. If you ask them, well, who are you? They will say, well, I'm an ER nurse, or I'm a dog groomer, I'm an insurance broker, I'm a high school student, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a firefighter. Okay, they find their identity in their job. Other people root their identity in some close relationship. They, they see themselves primarily as a husband or as a grandma or a best buddy or somebody's girlfriend. That's my identity. Still others conceive of their identity in terms of their achievements. Who am I? Well, yeah, I'm a straight-A student. Or I, I'm a deal closer. Or I'm a scratch golfer. And then there are those whose identity is tied to some special interest. You know, they're a Packers fan, unfortunately. Or... A watercolors painter, they're a snow skier, they're a Harley rider. Now, now, there are a couple of problems with finding our identity along the lines of what I've just been describing. First problem is this, most of those sources are fairly fragile, uh, unstable, they fluctuate over time. So if you find your identity in your job, well, you could lose your job, your job can go away. You find your identity in some relationship, the relationship can go sour. 
You find your identity in your achievements. Your achievements are old. They're ancient history. You find your identity in some special interest. Well, what if the interest wanes? What if it becomes old or stale? Okay, bad way to look for identity in, in things that are unstable. Second problem is this. None of the things I've mentioned are robust enough to give a complete picture of who you are, who God has made you to be. So you ask me the question, who are you? If, if I respond, well, I'm a Cubs fan. That may be true. That is true. <laughs> but if that's at the top of my list of identity markers, that's sad. I mean, even if I, if I take something more significant, I say, well, who am I? I'm, I'm the dad of three stellar grown children. Okay, that's more significant than being a, a, a Cubs fan, but still it doesn't paint the whole picture of who God has made me to be. So in the course of this series, we're going to discover that the richest sense of identity a person can have, listen, The richest sense of identity a person can have originates from a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. The richest sense of identity we can have originates from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So for the next six weeks, uh, we're going to be studying together the first three chapters of the New Testament epistle of Ephesians, and we're going to be finding our identity in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 1, that's where we start today. I encourage you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1. And this is a good series to bring a Bible uh, with you because you're going to be marking it up and by the time the series is over, you're going to have a pretty marked up Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So while you're looking for Ephesians, let me give you some context, capital C, historical background. Okay, but the Apostle Paul writes this New Testament epistle, and he writes it to a group of Christ followers in a city called Ephesus, ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia at the time, in what is current-day Turkey. Okay, Ephesus was a bustling seaport. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was uh, throbbing with life. It was the center of Diana worship. It was the headquarters for the Diana cult. In fact, there was a temple built to the goddess Diana there that that was listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Paul is writing to some Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. These are people whom he knows and he loves dearly. Uh, He's visited them on several different occasions. In fact, his second visit, he stayed with them almost three years, day after day after day, pouring into their lives, mentoring them in their faith. Now, now what's so unusual uh, when I say that he's so close is if you read the book of Ephesians, the tone of it is rather formal. So Bible scholars have tried to figure out, well, if he's an an intimate friend of these people, why such a formal tone? And they've concluded it's because Ephesians is, is meant to be a circular letter. So Paul is addressing it to these good friends of his, and he's sending it their way, but when they're done reading and digesting it, he expects them to pass it on to another church and another church and another church throughout the province of Asia till everybody gets a chance to read what he has to say. So what is so important, what is so important that Paul feels the need to say this to a wide variety of churches? What is the theme of Ephesians? In the words of one Bible scholar, the theme of Ephesians is identity formation. Identity formation. That's what we're talking about in the course of this series. Where does your identity come from? 
And each week of this series, as we work through the first three chapters of Ephesians, we're going to give you a one-word identity marker. Okay, one word that kind of sums up the passage for, for the day. So today, the word is chosen. Say chosen with me. Chosen. Okay, who am I? I'm chosen. Three aspects of chosen. If you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to do that and fill that in as we go along. Is that we are chosen by the triune God. Chosen by the triune God. That's number one in your outline. Let me read the opening verses of Ephesians 1 to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, there's our word, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we just acknowledged together here that this passage I've read to you from Ephesians 1 is the word of the Lord. I want, I want you to keep that in mind, the wor word of the Lord, because I'm about to point out a Bible doctrine in this passage that a lot of people object to. It's called predestination. Predestination. Do you believe in predestination? Do you believe God chooses God chooses people to experience forgiveness and a relationship with, with himself and eternal life? Is that all a result of God's predetermined choice? Now, already some of you are saying, whoa, whoa no, no, I don't believe that. But, but we just affirm that the Bible is the word of God, and the Bible clearly teaches predestination in passages such as Ephesians 1 that we just read together. I mean, let, let, let's go back to it. Pick it up at verse 4. There are a bunch of words I want you to circle. Again, this is why you bring your own Bible, so you mark it up as we go. Verse 4 begins, for he, God, chose us, circle chose us. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. Look at the next verse, verse 5. He, speaking of God, predestined us, circle predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Circle, God's pleasure and will. Now I want you to drop down all the way to verse 11. We didn't read this, but let me jump ahead and read verse 11 to you. It says, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen, circle chosen, having been predestined, circle predestined, according to the plan of him, okay, circle God's plan, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Circle the purpose of his will. Now, take a look at all the words we just circled. Chose us. Predestined us. God's pleasure and will. Chosen. Predestined. The plan of him, of God. The purpose of his will. Okay, so who is in charge of a person's salvation from beginning to end? Who chooses, who predestines people according to his plan and purpose? Who does this? Call it out. God. God. 
Now, here's what makes the doctrine of predestination so uncomfortable for some people. This is why even some Christ followers object to it. See, the minute we say God chooses people for eternal life, it raises the question, but what about those God doesn't choose? What about those God doesn't choose? And that leads to additional questions about God's fairness, about the extent of God's love. And But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Paul doesn't go down that rabbit trail in Ephesians chapter 1. You know, Bible scholars are quick to point out that this chapter doesn't try to give us a full-blown explanation of how predestination works. Paul's point, they say, is simply that Christ followers ought to be awestruck ought to be awestruck by the realization that they've been chosen by God. Chosen by God. The triune God of the universe wants me. Now, now, now the reason I make reference to the triune God of the universe is because Paul, very specifically, in the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, our text for today, he describes the role that each person of the Holy Trinity plays, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity plays in choosing Christ followers. So let's start with God the Father. We've already seen his role in choosing us in verse 4, but let me read it to you again. It says, For he, God, God the Father chose us in him, Christ, before the creation of the world. Now, God chose us before the creation of the world. Now, there's an amazing truth here I I want to introduce with an analogy. I want you to think of a time in your life when you were chosen for something. Okay, can you think of a time when you were chosen? Remember what it felt like to be chosen? Maybe you think all the way back to grade school on the playground and you were the first one chosen for the kickball team because you were a pretty good athlete. Or or maybe you think back to high school, you were chosen for prom queen or prom king. They still do that. Uh, Because you were popular, because everybody knew you. Okay, maybe a a time in your work life when you were chosen by the boss for a special project because he knew you could deliver the goods. Okay, Now, do you notice a repeating word in each of the examples I just gave you? It's the word because. You were chosen because you were athletic. You were chosen because you were popular. You were chosen because the boss knew you'd get the job done. So, so, So you were chosen... Because in some way you deserved to be chosen. But now I want to contrast that with God's choosing of us. Paul says God chose you in Christ before the creation of the world. Before you did anything to deserve it. Before you were even born. You know, stop and think about this. Over a hundred billion galaxies in the universe, they say. And before God created one of them, he looked down the corridor of time and he saw you and he said, I choose you. I want you. The God of the universe chose me. Now, there's a second person of the Trinity involved in all this. And that is God the Son. Go back to the first line of verse 4 one more time. It says, for he, God, chose us in him, okay, in Christ, before the creation of the world. Now, that little expression, in him or in Christ, is one of Paul's favorites. 
You know, th this is Paul's major description of what it means to be a Christ follower. If you're a Christ follower, you are in Christ. He uses this expression 164 times in his 13 New Testament epistles, 36 times in Ephesians, 11 times in the passage that we're looking at today, the first half of Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're, you're a Christ follower, you are in Christ. Now, theologians refer to this as the doctrine of union with Christ. Let me, let me show you a few of these references in chapter 1, middle of verse 1. Paul says that he's writing this letter to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Drop down to the last line of verse 3. Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've already looked at the beginning of verse 4 several times. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Drop down to verse seven. In Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Drop down to verse 11, it begins, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen. See how this pops up again and again and again. When we surrender our lives to Christ, we are united with him in some supernatural way. We now live in him and he now lives in us. Two sides of a very important coin, union with Christ. The fact that I live in Christ means that everything that Christ accomplished is credited to my account. So Jesus goes to the cross and he takes sin's penalty. The penalty of sin is death, right? You go your way instead of God's way, you disconnect from the giver of life and you die. Jesus takes the death I deserve because I'm in Christ, it's credited to my account. And I am not only in Christ, the flip side is Christ is in me, which means I now have the power to live in such a way as I could never live before. You know, I would consistently strike out at the plate when it came to a battle with lust or pride or greed, materialism, selfishness. Now I could win those battles because Christ is in me. There, there, there's so much more that could be said about this doctrine of union with Christ. But right now, all I want to do is I want to relate it to this notion of our chosenness. See, the reason we're chosen by God is because we're in Christ. Let me say that again. The reason we're chosen by God is because we're in Christ, and Christ is the ultimate chosen one. God chose Jesus. Now, let me use a silly analogy to help you understand this point. Okay, let's say I'm coaching a little league team, all right? And after practice one day, I say to the boys, I say, guys, you see my SUV over there? In five minutes, it's headed to DQ, Dairy Queen. Anybody who wants to go, jump on board. If you don't want to go, you don't have to. Okay, so half the team, five of the guys get on board my SUV, and five of the guys decide not to. Now, in, in one sense, did I choose to take those boys to Dairy Queen? Yes, I did. In fact, that's exactly what they're going to tell their mom when she asks about the uh, chocolate syrup stain on her chin. Now, coach took us to DQ. H however, did I not choose the boys who didn't go to Dairy Queen? You say, well, no, the invitation was extended to every one of them, and there was plenty of room in the SUV. They chose, not to go. they chose not to get in the vehicle that was headed there. Now, some theologians say this is how to explain that part of the doctrine of predestination that bugs us. Yes, God chooses, 
But he chooses the vehicle of salvation, and the vehicle of salvation is Christ. If you are in Christ, you're headed to salvation. On the other hand, does he not choose others? Well, if others choose not to get on board, if others choose not to surrender to Jesus, then they're not in Christ, and they forfeit salvation. Does this make sense? Now, here's a third person in the Trinity. We've talked about God the Father. We've talked about God the Son. The third person is God the Holy Spirit. What role does the Holy Spirit play in choosing us? Let's go back to today's text, Ephesians 1. I want you to drop down to the closing two verses of today's text, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed... When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, before we take a look at what these verses say about the role of the Holy Spirit in choosing us, let me note something special that Paul says about our chosenness at the beginning of verse 13. Paul says that we were included in Christ when... When we heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. When when we made the decision to believe. When we surrendered our lives to Christ. So here is this passage that's all about God choosing us for salvation. And then Paul throws in this line about our choice. You know, we're not included in Christ until we surrender to him, until we've made our decision. So it raises the questions, well then, does God choose us or do we choose God? Both. But it's important to note the proper order here. God chose first. God took the initiative. In fact, friends, if God hadn't taken the initiative, if God had never chosen us, we would never be able to choose him. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get to chapter 2 of Ephesians. And at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says that before you surrender your life to Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, we're spiritually dead before we come to Christ. Which means that spiritually speaking, we cannot make any life-changing spiritual decision. We can't choose to follow Jesus if we're spiritually dead. D-E-A-D, dead? Imagine you're at a funeral, okay, and as you walk by the casket, you hear a voice, and the voice says, could you get me a Coke? I'm really thirsty. Would that wig you out a little bit? Yeah, why? Because dead people don't ask for Cokes, right? Spiritually dead people don't ask Jesus to become the Savior and the King of their lives. Spiritually dead people don't choose to follow None of us would choose to follow Jesus unless God had taken the first move, made the first move, and chosen us, enabling us to choose him in response. You get it? It's good. Okay, a couple of important words that describe the role of the Holy Spirit in choosing us. I want you to circle in verses 13 and 14. First word is found in the closing line of verse 13. Paul says that genuine Christ followers... Okay, chosen people are marked in him with a seal, and the seal, he says, is the promised Holy Spirit. Now, a a seal was used in the ancient world to authenticate ownership. 
Okay, you, you put your seal on something as a way of saying, this belongs to me. So the seal could, could be a waxed seal on an important document, like a you know, title for a piece of property. Uh, the, the seal could be a brand that you burned on your cattle that said, these cattle belong to me. Okay, the seal could be a pierced ear of your servant that says, this is my servant. Okay, some, some way a seal authenticated ownership. When you put your trust in Jesus and surrender your life to him, the Holy Spirit comes to live on side, uh, inside. He is the seal that you belong to God. He is the seal that you've been chosen by God. You're God's. Now, there's a, there's a second word I want you to see that describes the Holy Spirit. This is in the opening line of verse 14. Paul says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. A deposit. Let me tell you a quick anecdote to illustrate what's going on here. Deposit. Uh, years ago, when Sue and I first moved to the St. Charles area, and we bought a house, and we had no furniture for the house, we started shopping for, for furniture at the King County Flea Market. We would go once a month to the flea market. Most of our furniture is still flea market furniture. And uh, the first time I bought a big piece of furniture, never forget it, was a big chest of drawers, and I, I had just written out my check for this chest of drawers, and I'd handed it to the seller, and he pulled out a drawer, and he handed it to me. So I'm hanging onto this drawer, and I'm wondering, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And he could see the confused look on my face, and so he explained. He said, I assume you're going to be doing some shopping still. And I said, yes. And you're going to come get the dresser later, come pick it up with your car. I said, yes. He said, how do you know it'll still be here? See, you, you could leave and somebody else could come along and say, well, I'll pay even more for that dresser and I could sell it to the higher bidder and when you come back, I'll just hand you your check back. And I'm really looking confused. And he reaches out and he pats the drawer. He said, this drawer is a deposit guaranteeing that the rest of the dresser is yours. When you come back, it'll be here for you. The Holy Spirit is a deposit. In this passage, Paul talks about the rich inheritance that God has in store for us. How do we know that's true? How do we know it's all coming our way? Because we're holding the drawer. Because we get the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Holy Spirit. Number two, we've been looking at Chosen from the standpoint of the triune God who does the choosing. Point number two, chosen for every spiritual blessing. Okay, we're not only chosen by Father, Son, and Spirit, we are chosen for every spiritual blessing. Go back to Ephesians 1, let me read to you again verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So for what has God chosen us? Paul says, for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now, now does that sound sort of, I don't know, ethereal to you? Kind of mystical, whimsical? Not something you can hold on to. I mean, would you rather have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms... Or hard, cold cash, like a million bucks. Well, when Paul talks about spiritual blessings here, 
He's not talking about something ethereal. He's just referring to the fact that it's God the Spirit, God the Spirit who secures these blessings for us. That's why they're called spiritual blessings. And in the heavenly realms, the heavenly realms is not a description of some future location where people are going to sit around on clouds playing harps throughout eternity. This is one of Paul's favorite expressions, pops up five times in the epistle of Ephesians. And it refers not to a future world, it refers to the present world, but the present world that is unseen. Okay, the world that's all around us, even if we rarely recognize its existence. Now friends, the fact of the matter is we live as if the material world is all there is. We live as if the only things that matter are things that we could see and touch. In fact, if we were to make out a list of our blessings, make a list of your blessings. Many, if not most of our our blessings would be material things. But, But back to our series theme of identity. Are these material things really the things that matter most? Are they really the things that give us the sense of who we are? So my car is a blessing but you take away my car and I'd still be me. Okay, my house is a blessing. Okay, but I could live someplace else and I could still be me. Yeah, my my dog, my gym membership, my job, my travel opportunities, they're they're all blessings, but do any of these, these things make me, me? Are they foundational to my identity? See, Paul wants to tell us here about some, some blessings that impact us at a much deeper level. He wants to talk about spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, not ethereal sorts of things, mystical sorts of things, just the opposite. These are things that make a huge difference in who we are. They're the most important truths about us. So let me quickly scroll through four or five of these that Paul mentions. We don't have time to go into them in detail. But jot these down. First, he makes reference to adoption into God's family. That's a spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Look at the opening line of verse 5. Why does God choose us? Why does he predestine us? Well, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Adoption into God's family. Now, on the one hand, this is very relational. This is very intimate. You know, in fact, in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, he says, if you've surrendered your, yourself to Jesus, you now have the right to call God the Father, Abba Father, which is an, America, uh, an Aramaic term that means Papa or Daddy, intimacy. There's also a legal side to this blessing of adoption. In the Roman world of Paul's day, adoption was a big deal. If you were adopted in a well, into a well-to-do Roman family, you got all the rights of a biological child including your share of the inheritance, all yours, because you're adopted into the family. One of the blessings God gives those he chooses is adoption into his family. Here's another blessing, redemption. Okay, go back to the beginning of verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now, in the slave world of Paul's day, this word redemption referred to the purchase of a slave's freedom. That's what Christ has done for us. Christ has bought our freedom. You know, one of my favorite redemption stories in literature, actually been made into a movie, been made into a Broadway musical, Victor Hugo's La Miserable. 
the story of Jean Valjean. The story opens, he's an escaped convict. He's running for his life, and he finds himself at night in this little village, and he comes across a priest. And the priest invites him into his home and gives him a meal, gives him a cozy bed for the night. And Valjean repays the priest for his kindness by stealing from him. He rips off six silver plates, puts them in a rucksack, and takes off. Well, some soldiers see him running away, so they capture him, and they bring him back to the priest, certain that the priest is going to identify him as a thief. The priest, instead, he looks at Valjean, and he says loud enough for the soldiers to hear, he says, my good man, why, why did you take just the silver plates I gave you? Why didn't you take the silver candlesticks that go with them? I gave you those, too. And now the soldiers are confused. They thought they'd caught a thief, but obviously the priest has given this stuff to the guy. And so they let him go, and the priest leans over, and he whispers to Valjean. He says, you no longer belong to evil. I am buying your soul and giving it to God. I love that line. I am buying your soul and giving it to God. That's what Jesus has done for us. Redemption through his blood, verse 7 says. He purchased your soul at the cost of his own life so that he could free you. Free you from what? I, I love to pray the prayer of redemption frequently in my quiet time, my devotional time with God, I'll say, God, I just want to scroll through some of the things that Jesus saved me from, that he redeemed me from. So thank you, Jesus, that you redeemed me from God's just condemnation for my sins. Thank you that you redeemed me. You set me free from Satan's kingdom. Thank you that you redeemed me from a worthless life without focus, without mission. Thank you that you redeemed me. You set me free from anxiety and fear. Thank you that, that you've set me free from bitterness toward others who've abused me. Thank you that you've set me free from the grip of materialism. And on and on it goes. He's redeemed me. He's bought my soul and given it to God. Here's another spiritual blessing. Same verse that we were just looking at, verse 7. The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Because Christ paid the penalty for sins on the cross, the penalty again is death. We can have a, a clean slate before God. If you surrender to Christ, a clean slate. Can anybody put a price tag on a clean slate, a clear conscience before God? First John 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins because of what Christ did on the cross and purify us from all unrighteousness. Oh my goodness, if you've never experienced this, morning by morning getting up and knowing you've got a clean slate because Christ has paid it all. There, there's one more blessing crammed into verse 7. The verse concludes after Paul talks about God's redemption and forgiveness. He says it's all been in accordance with the riches of God's grace, circle grace, that he lavished on us. Not just grace, but rich grace. Not just grace, but lavished grace. And I won't even try to describe everything that's included in this particular blessing because theologians have written entire books on the topic of God's grace. Suffice it to say that grace is the category heading that covers every possible good thing that God has ever bestowed on us or ever will bestow on us in the future. And speaking of blessings in the future... 
Let me throw one more, one more blessing in this text your way. Last verse of the text, verse 14. We looked at this earlier when we talked about the Holy Spirit's role in choosing us. It says that he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. An eternal inheritance. Yeah, we don't even begin to comprehend everything that will include. But you, just take a look at this list of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Adoption into God's family, redemption, set free, the forgiveness of sins, grace, unbelievable, lavished grace, eternal inheritance. God chose us for all this. And friends, these, these blessings are the truest story of who we are. If you're in Christ, these blessings are the, the truest story of who you are. They paint an amazing picture of identity. One, one final, third point. You know, we've been chosen by the triune God. We've been chosen for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And third, we have been chosen to the praise of God's glory. To the praise of God's glory. Have you ever gotten a letter or an email from somebody, and before you checked the return address, you just started reading it, and then you got about two paragraphs in, and you're wondering, who wrote this? Okay, who is this from? And so you had to scroll to the end of the letter in order to find who had penned you this letter. Okay, th this would have never happened to you in the ancient world, because there was a, a stereotypical format that every letter followed, and it began with the author. The author identified himself right at the top of the letter. And then he identified the recipients, who he's writing to. And then there would be a wish, a warm wish, usually a prayer for the health of the person, the recipients of the letter, the, the people who are being written to. Okay, Ephesians follows a similar pattern. In fact, all of Paul's letters, 13 letters, Galatians is the only one that doesn't follow this pattern. Okay, Paul begins by identifying himself as the author, and then he says, this is who I'm writing to. And then there is this, this blessing, but instead of it being a prayer for the health of the recipients, it's a listen, it's a prayer in praise to God, a prayer of praise to God for the way he's working in the lives of those recipients. And so Ephesians, you know, is one of those letters where Paul begins with this praise to God. In fact, it's an effusive praise. Bible scholars tell us if you look at the first half of Ephesians 1 in the original text, the original language, Greek, what you'll discover is it's one entire sentence. Okay, it's as if Paul begins to praise God and he doesn't want to come up for air. Okay, he just, he can't stop. It just goes on and on, and he doesn't take a breath. He doesn't pause for a comma or a period or a semicolon. He just keeps going. Another Bible scholar says that the first half of Ephesians is like a praise snowball. It begins at the top of the mountain, and as it rolls down, it just keeps picking up speed and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So Paul is praising God for having chosen us. And then he says that praise ought to be characteristic of everyone who's experienced the blessing of being chosen by God. Praise ought to be characteristic of everyone who's been chosen, chosen by God. Look at how this theme pops up numerous times in today's passage. Okay, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, right out of the blocks, praise God who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Drop down to verse 6. 
In verse 5, Paul reminds us that God adopted us into his family. And then verse 6 begins, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did God adopt you? To the praise of his glorious grace. Go down to the middle of verse 12. Paul says in this verse that God chose us in, in order that when we put our hope in Christ, we might be for the praise of his glory. That we might be for the praise of his glory. Go down to the last line of today's text, the last line of verse 14. He's talking about the, the Holy Spirit guaranteeing this amazing inheritance that God has in store for us to the praise of his glory. So what does God desire today? What does God desire today from those of us who are chosen? He wants some recognition of all he's done for us, of all he's given us. He wants praise for his great glory. Friends, this should come from our lips on a daily basis. If we've been chosen by God before the creation of the world for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, praise ought to spill from our lips on a daily basis. It should also be a weekly priority to gather with other chosen people and lift up loud, warm-hearted, fist-pumping waves of worship and praise. You know, this is why I encourage you from time to time, kind of nag you a little bit in this regard. I say, please make every effort to get here, not just on time. Get here a few minutes early so you don't miss a single song of worship and praise to God. Because these songs of worship, they're not preliminaries. Okay, this isn't a warm-up to the main event, and the main event is the sermon. No, the main event is the worship itself. This is why God chose you. God chose you for you to be a worshiper. God chose you to be a praise giver. That's what we're going to do in just a moment. We're going to end with a rousing hymn to God be the glory. Sing it from our hearts. In fact, I'm going to ask our worship bands just to come out on our stages right now and get ready to do that. We, we have been chosen by God to praise him with our lips. And we've been chosen by God, friends, to praise him with our lives. Not just with our lips, but with our lives. You know, one last look at the opening line of verse 4. It says that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Now, don't miss this, because this is the whole purpose here. This is the responsibility that goes with being chosen. We've looked at the privilege side. Here's the responsibility side. Chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God wants people whose lives, whose lives are being transformed in praise to God. So when we first come to God, we come to him in all the brokenness of our sin. And God forgives us in Christ. But he has no intention of leaving us in a broken condition. He wants to transform us into obedient Christ followers. And as we participate in that transformation, as holiness, holiness becomes a priority of our lives. We want to be holy with our words. We want to be holy in our relationships. We want to be holy in our entertainment choices. Our goal is to be holy. Why? Because it's our way of bringing praise back to the God who chose us. Yeah. If you've never, by the way, one of the ways to Really praise God with your life. And this is an infomercial with which I close. 
You know, the praise of a life, a holy life, begins when you go public with your faith in Jesus. When you say, just as he chose me and set his seal of ownership on me, so I want to say, and I belong to him. I want the whole world, and I want my friends to know, my family to know that I belong to him. And the way you say this is baptism. And three weeks from today is our next baptism celebration. If, if you made a decision to put your trust in Jesus three months ago or three years ago or 15 years ago, but you've never gone public in baptism saying, I belong to God, please consider a baptism orientation class and then join us in that celebration. Now, across our Four campuses, we're going to sing a rousing version of To God Be the Glory. As we do so, we're also going to bring God praise in another way. We're going to bring him praise with the gifts, our offerings. So we'll collect our offerings as we sing. But across our four campuses, let's stand together and sing To God Be the Glory.